Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger than life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. This show is brought to you by Onnit.com, Chimera Coffee, and Datsusara. Onnit.com is a human optimization site carrying a variety of products designed to help people function at their physical and mental best, from supplements to food to fitness equipment. Check out Onnit products and receive a 10% discount when you order at www.onnit.com forward slash history. If you ever drink coffee, please consider giving Chimera Coffee a try. They make some of the best coffee out there and they support the podcast. So please try them out by using the code history at k-i-m-e-r-a-k-o-f-f-e-e.com for a 10% discount. And if you are considering buying a travel bag, a backpack or a computer bag, please check out the amazing hemp gear that Datsusara has to offer. Go to www.dsgear.com and use the code Daniele, that's my name, D-A-N-I-E-L-E, at checkout for a discount. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at the History on Fire podcast website. At the end of this episode, I'm going to discuss a couple of things regarding future plans for upcoming episodes, other ways to support the show and make sure it stays viable. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. This tale makes me think of George R.R. R. Martin, the creator of the A Song of Ice and Fire saga which was later adapted by HBO into the show Game of Thrones. I imagine George R. R. Martin's babysitter telling him this tale when he was little as a bedtime story. If this were true, it would certainly go a long way to explain Martin's passion for killing just about all the characters he creates. Everyone involved in the story we'll play today, in fact, meets a very violent end either having an unpleasant date with the pointy end of a sword or having their heads removed from the rest of their bodies. These, by the way, are the lucky ones. The unlucky ones get nailed to crosses. The story I'm talking about is the tale of the third and biggest of the servile wars in ancient Rome, Spartacus' Rebellion. There are less than 4,000 words 
in ancient primary sources about Spartacus. The surviving accounts we have are by Plutarch, Appian and Florus, and they're mostly based on the material written by Sallust and Livy, of which very little remains. In some way, this paucity of information, this lack of details, is actually a very good thing for all the filmmakers, screenwriters, novelists, everybody who has seized the Spartacus archetype and run with it. Why would this be good for them? Why would having little written about Spartacus be beneficial to all the people who have uh, fictionalized the Spartacus story? Well, for one, because it leaves them free to run with their imagination. They can use this powerful archetype, which, you know, there's enough material in the primary sources to offer them this powerful archetype on a golden platter, and yet there isn't so much that they have to be bound to all the details of a very lengthy story. So this allows them to combine their imagination with historical reality. The Spartacus Rebellion, or Spartacus War, however you want to call it, took place in between the years 73 and 71 before Common Era. This third servile war is actually very different from the previous two, in uh, leadership, location, and just about everything else. Whereas the previous two wars, which we have covered in episode 1 of History on Fire, they both originated in Sicily, they both originated among agricultural slaves, this one will, uh, the location will be different. You will, you will begin in Campania. Campania is the region where uh, the modern city of Naples is in. Um, it's only like a hundred some miles from Rome. So it's very close to the center of the Roman Republic. And on top of it, these we're not talking about farming slaves who rebel. The, the people who will begin the rebellions who are gladiators. People who were they were they were still slaves, but they were trained killers, essentially. There are people whose entire career was built on becoming mo the most effective fighters possible. In some ways, Spartacus' revolt was the most successful slave rebellion in ancient Rome. In some ways, it was even one of the most successful slave rebellions throughout all human history. There's something powerful about this story. The fact that Spartacus was operating literally within just a few miles of Rome, challenging one of the greatest superpowers of the days right in its home ground, right facing all of its main armies, not you know at the outskirts of the empire, not dealing with a few bored soldiers who didn't want to be there. Spartacus takes all of Rome's power head on and beats them in more than one occasion. You know, there have been other great slave rebellions throughout history. One of the most famous and possibly the most successful one took place at the turn of the 19th century in uh, Haiti. This was probably even bigger than Spartacus Rebellion and definitely luckier in its outcome. Because that's the thing that's tricky about the Spartacus story. Even though it's so epic and it seems so successful for a while at least, it really is not all that successful in its hmm, long term. The long term effects are not what Spartacus probably would have liked to see. In some way, 
the fact that you could stage this big, strong rebellion and yet not win anyway is an excellent explanation why there will be no fourth slave war in ancient Rome. I think people after the third one got the clue that there really wasn't much luck in fighting against Rome. The rebelling against Roman power did not lead to some happy ending. I mean, I guess people do learn from history. And if you see people rebelling and getting crushed, rebelling again and getting crushed again, rebelling a third time and getting crushed again, and when you see even somebody as successful and amazing as Spartacus to be completely torn to pieces eventually by the power of the Roman Republic, that's not exactly an incentive to want to start your own rebellion. I was thinking at this point to have a lengthy section about the mythology of Spartacus, you know, the Spartacus that we have come to know through plays, novels, and movies. I even went ahead and recorded it. It was rather long, and I decided to cut it. I pressed the delete button, and it's now in the dustbin somewhere in the computer. It probably would have been great if I was writing a PhD dissertation, but I realized that this was not exactly the material that made for engaging podcasting, so I let it go. But let it suffice to say that the mythology of Spartacus created by movies has a lot more to do with contemporary circumstances that the writers and filmmakers were dealing with, rather than with the actual historical Spartacus. In other words, most of the people who have fictionalized the story of Spartacus have appropriated it as a symbol for whatever ideology they decided to endorse. There have been very right-wing people who have seen Spartacus as a hero. There have been very left-wing people who have seen him as a hero. Everyone has projected their hopes and dreams on the guy. The fact that Spartacus could be simultaneously the hero of Ronald Reagan and Karl Marx says a lot about the power of archetypes to be manipulated in any which way one desires. In any case, enough said about that, let's get down to the business of figuring out who the historical Spartacus actually was. Here is some of the info that we do have about Spartacus. All the sources that we have are written from an upper-class Roman viewpoint, so none of them are particularly friendly to him, None of them are even neutral for the matter. Mostly they, mostly they tend to be fairly hostile to him. But despite this bias in the primary source, one thing that we do know about him is that he was a, from a region of the world known as Thrace. Thrace straddled the border between modern-day Greece and Bulgaria. The Thracians were pastoral nomadic people, renowned for their skills in horse riding, drinking, hunting, and fighting. And the Romans decide to put the Thracians' talents to work and hire them for their auxiliary cavalry. Here is where we have very thin information about what happens. We get the basics, but they are told extremely quickly by Appian. Appian tells us that Spartacus was among those Thracians who were recruited by the Romans, he fought for the Romans, he eventually deserted, 
was captured and was sold as a slave. Now, this is quite a bit of information, and it's useful, but it also leaves many questions unanswered. Why did he desert in the first place? How was he captured? Many parts of the stories are left in the dark. As far as speculation goes, we do know that in the year 76 before Common Era, the Romans went to war against the Thracian tribe. So it's entirely possible that Spartacus decided to desert when the Romans asked him to fight against fellow Thracians. It's perfectly reasonable to assume that, but then again, we have nothing to back it up and prove it for sure. It's a good theory, but nothing more than that. Some of the sources tell the Spartacus was, the word they use is latro, which basically means bandit, outlaw, the literal translation is thief. But at the same time, what makes this is confusing is that the same word was also used for insurgents, for rebels, for people who had a political bone to pick with Rome. We simply don't know. Could it be he just deserted to turn to banditry? Possible. Could it be he deserted to fight against the Roman invasion? Also possible. Hard to tell. We know he was eventually captured, along with his wife, and they were sent to Rome to be sold as slaves. The story they tell about his time in Rome is that when they first arrived there, at one point Spartacus was sleeping, and people around him saw a very large snake wrapped around his neck. Other than giving everyone a big fright, the snake didn't really harm Spartacus or anyone else, and eventually left. Spartacus' wife was a prophetess. She was a devotee of the god Dionysus. She saw this as a sign of some powerful destiny, something larger than life that awaited Spartacus. This is where the primary sources fail us. They tell us, she said, this was a sign that Spartacus would eventually meet a fill-in-the-blanks ending. Some people believe something amazing in a positive way would happen. Others state she predicted a tragic destiny ahead of him. Again, no one knows for sure. Would be nice to know, but we don't. What we do know about him is that he was freakishly strong. In the words of the historian Plutarch, he not only possessed great spirit and bodily strength, but he was more intelligent and nobler than his fate, and he was more Greek than his Thracian background would indicate. By the way, I find it hilarious how Plutarch can't help but to throw some racist remarks in his report. In his beliefs, a Greek was someone who was civilized, someone who was worthy of respect, whereas a Thracian, pff, that's a Thracian, freaking barbarians, that's the way Plutarch viewed it. So, because of what Spartacus will eventually achieve will force even his enemies to acknowledge his greatness and that he pulled off something amazing, Plutarch's way of rationalizing it is, hmm, something so amazing doesn't quite fit a Thracian, it's more like a Greek than a Thracian, because you know how those Thracians are. Another historian, Sallust, 
similarly praises Spartacus for his strong spirit. In Sallust's words, Spartacus was a man of immense bodily strength and spirit. All this emphasis in the primary sources regarding Spartacus' physical strength suggests something that it tells us something about what's about to happen to Spartacus. It doesn't take a genius to figure out to what use the Romans would put a man of his strength and fighting experience. Now, if you are going to the slave market to buy a learned tutor for your son's education, you wouldn't look at Spartacus twice. A nice, nerdy Greek intellectual would do. But a Thracian more comfortable splitting skulls than reading books probably would not be your top choice for the job. Ditto if you were in the market for some poor bastard to work your fields. Spartacus wouldn't do. He would spend half of the time worrying about waking up in the middle of the night with his knife to your throat. But on the other hand, if you are a man like Lentulus Batiatus, if you are a Lanista, a trainer of gladiators, who taught them about dueling, about sticking a short sword through a man's guts in the most effective way possible, and would eventually rend them to fight in the arena. In that case, upon running into a physical specimen like Spartacus at the slave market, you'd be ready to swear that there is a good and just God who watches over all of us. Spartacus would be a Lanista's dream. Well, that's as long as said Lanista couldn't see into the future and predict that Spartacus would become the leader of the greatest slave revolt in the history of Rome. But Lentulus Batiatus didn't know this. All he knew is that he had found a man who seemed born to be a gladiator and was going to make him a good chunk of money by fighting in the arena representing his school. So Lentulus Batiatus promptly bought Spartacus, along with his wife, and took them to his gladiatorial school in Capua, just a few miles from Naples. Before seeing what happens once Spartacus reaches Lentulus Batiato's school, let's go back for a second to something we just mentioned a minute ago. The reference made to Spartacus' lady being a devotee to the god Dionysus. Now, Dionysus was a national god in Thrace. This theme here is worth exploring not only because there are some incredibly fun stories associated with Dionysus, but also because there are several cases in which the worship of Dionysus was central to slave rebellions, and there's also quite a bit of speculation indicating that it may have been an important part of Spartacus' rebellion as well. We basically know nothing about what the people involved in Spartacus' rebellion were thinking, about what they wanted, about what they thought, what they... Because there's nothing from their point of view in the primary sources. We don't hear a single one of their voices. However, since we know Spartacus' wife was a prophetess of Dionysus, and we do know that the cult of Dionysus was central to several slave revolts, it seems reasonable to put two and two together and assume the cult of Dionysus may have played a role in Spartacus' story. We have evidence that Dionysus were, was worshipped by the Greeks about 3,500 years ago, give or take a century or two. If you enjoy 
got embossed Dionysus, which was also known as Bacchus among the Romans. In that case, Dionysus was your friend. Dionysus was the god of grapes, wine, of ecstatic alter state of consciousness. He was the protector of outcasts, of those who didn't fit within the mainstream society. The story about Dionysus was that he he would free his followers from fear, inhibitions, and self-judgment, thanks to his wine, music, and dancing. In many ways, Dionysus didn't simply question authority, he constantly challenged authorities and their restrictive moral codes. According to some versions, his followers would drink wine, which they consider to be the blood from the god's body. Now, if this is true, this would be an interesting connection to the Jesus story. And unlike most of the other Greek gods who were worshipped in temples, buildings, and cities, Dionysus was more of a nature god. He was associated with woods, mountains, open air. In addition to wine, music, and dancing, Dionysus used another medicine to free his followers from their place within an oppressive social order. He was a god of sex, the kind of sex that frees people. He was an orgasm god, a god of unrestrained life force, a god of mystery and wine, a god of enthusiasm, a god of instinct, a god of the wilderness, an outlaw god offering a middle finger to social convention. Dionysus would make his followers forget everything that they were supposed to do or to be. In many ways, he was a god who insisted on joy in spite of everything. A physical god was all about muscles and sweat, tendons, heart and guts. The overarching theme here is that he encouraged irrational ecstasy, much like love is irrational and doesn't follow the prudent dictates of logic, also the ecstasy that Dionysus pushed for uh, tried to achieve the same state of consciousness. Some scholars connect the origin of Dionysus to India and to the god Shiva, who presents fairly similar characteristics, at least to some degree. Even in some of the Greek versions, Dionysus was portrayed as a foreign god coming from the East, as a returning from somewhere far away, outside the boundaries of what the Greeks recognized as the civilized world, and always followed by some very wild ladies and satyrs, the figures in Greek mythology were half goat and half man, and who incidentally are regularly portrayed as quite sexually aroused. Dionysus would arrive in a chariot, drawn by lions or tigers, typically symbolizing new life. The religious ceremony associated with his worship were known as the Dionysian Mysteries. For lack of better comparison, you can see the Mysteries as some kind of psychedelic rituals. They were, I guess, the religious Greek-Roman version of raves. Interesting enough, the translation for the female followers of Dionysus was the raving ones, which seems quite appropriate here. So here we have a combination of mind-altering substances, 
plus dancing, plus music, and all of the above being used to provide uh, liberation for those marginalized by Greek society and oppressed by its many rules, particularly women, slaves, and foreigners. For a little bit, the Dionysian mysteries allow these people to escape from their social personality, from their ego, as all of this was swept up into an ecstatic state. The rituals, in which sex, particularly female sexuality, broke with the rules of everyday life, would eventually bloom into these orgiastic moments that were designed to wipe away the memory of that social identity, at least for a few hours. Although the Greek Dionysian rituals were primarily associated with women, the cult was actually open to both men and women. There's a very famous play by this Greek playwright named Euripides, who wrote a work about the female followers of Dionysus. In his description, they scared the hell out of authorities, out of kings and those in charge of upholding the social order. And when guards were sent to stop them and arrest them, in their frenzied state, they were able to use simple sticks to beat fully armored guards. They seemed to have supernatural powers, they displayed superhuman strength, they couldn't be hurt by weapons, and perform other seemingly magical skills. According to the words of an Italian historian named Aldo Schiavone, what Dionysus represented was, I quote, the unfathomable contradictoriness of life, who overturned fixed roles, inebriated minds, erased borders between the living and the dead, the human and the animal, nature and culture, exalted reproductive functions. So in some ways, think of the worship of Dionysus as a particularly juicy version of the Taoist yin and yang. So it's little wonder that philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche love Dionysus as the embodiment of some life-affirming force outside the boundaries of ordinary morality. If you're wondering what any of these has to do with slave revolts, you have my sympathy, and I swear I'm going to get to it as soon as possible. Now, some Greek rulers consider the worship of Dionysus a threat to civilized society, since every time they try prohibiting the cult, it always backfire and it never works. They decided instead to co-opt it by creating a domesticated form of the cult of Dionysus and turn it into a state religion in Athens. By the time the cult of Dionysus reached the Roman world, and of course it reached the Roman world since Roman culture pretty much stole everything that was there to steal from Greece, the same dynamics that had taken place in Greece took place in Rome as well. So Roman authorities would become equally alarmed when they'll realize the potentially revolutionary qualities of the worship of Dionysus. In some way, the cult could be seen as a counter-cultural movement freaking out the establishment, boring the use of mind-altering substance and unconventional sexuality. It's really not that difficult to see the Roman cult of Dionysus as having parallels to what happens in the United States in the 1960s. 
wildness, drug use, unhibited sexuality, all those ingredients seem eerily familiar. Now this whole story, at least as far as Rome is concerned, this whole story reached a boiling point around the year 186 before Common Era. The Roman historian Livy tells us that Roman upper classes were scared by the growing popularity of Dionysus. Uh, the cult broke rigid Roman social barriers between men and women, between free and slaves. This idea that they would all be equal in front of Dionysus, as they were all equally swept up in this ecstatic state, was something that Roman society, with its heavy hierarchy, with this profound separation between men and women, upper and lower classes, it's something that they found deeply troubling. Now, here is where the story got juicy. In the era of modern-day Tuscany, the worship of Dionysus was catching on. In the words of the Roman historian Livy, I quote, When wine had inflamed their desire, and it was night, and the mixing of males and females, and of persons of tender youth with older persons, extinguish all vestiges of shame, every kind of lewd behavior began to be practiced. The illegal sexual liaisons of free men and free women were not the only type of crimes that were being committed. Livy goes on to say that murders and other crimes took place in this context, thanks to the howling, the clashing of drums and cymbals, random moanings and other sounds that concealed the sounds of the more serious criminal activity going on. As Livy says, nobody who cried out could be heard among the sexual orgies and the slaughter. Now, most historians think that Livy was running very wild with his imagination. It's kind of hard to separate in his account, the slander from the reality. What we do know is that the cult eventually moved to Rome and someone promptly informed the consuls of the year that this was happening, and the consuls quickly organized to squash the cult of Dionysus. The cult was banned by senator senatorial decree in 186 BCE. About 7,000 people were arrested and most were immediately executed by the Roman state. I mean, think about it, almost 7,000 people being executed over being part of a religious movement, essentially. That's some heavy stuff right there. Now, whether some of the more serious uh, criminal charges were true or not is unknown. Scholarly opinion tends to side with the idea that while there may have been cases when the charges were true, for the most part these were probably made up and they were designed to squash a religious movement that was perceived to be challenging traditional Roman values. And in some ways, more than that, it, it, they were challenging the very philosophical foundation of Roman society. The Roman Senate sought to ban Dionysian rituals throughout all of the territories that they controlled. And they tried everything in their power to restrict these, um, any kind of gatherings to relatively few people. Well, the only result they achieved was pushing the cult underground. 
I mean, we, we know from modern experience how well prohibition work, right? Anytime you outlaw something people want, does, does that ever work? I mean, if there's demand, supply will always be there. And if the supply cannot be legal, then it will be illegal. You know, that's how black markets are created. In the words of the Italian historian Schiavone, authorities were, I quote, well aware of their potentially subversive effects on the social order. A rigid discipline of the female, of bodies no less than minds, lay in fact at the basis of the republican aristocratic ethic. And in another great quote by historian Brent Shaw, Bacchic rituals, which by the way, Bacchic is another term for Dionysian rituals since Bacchus was the Roman name for Dionysus. Bacchic rituals blurred not only gender boundaries between men and women, but also status boundaries between slave and free. The Bacchanalia were therefore consistently associated with slave resistance in southern Italy. And that's exactly why the Romans passed these laws, trying to crush the cult of Dionysus among the lower classes. It's because it gave them an ideology. It's because it gave them an experience of life lived outside of hierarchy. It gave them a glimpse of what a society with no masters and slaves could look like. And this experience would clearly be something very unsettling for a society like Rome that was entirely based on the notion of slavery and uh, self-conscious class distinctions. Dionysian rituals were a direct challenge against all of this. So here is what happens. After the crackdown, there was quickly thereafter a revolt in a part of, a part of southern Italy known as Apulia in the year 185 and 184 before Common Era. This was started among uh, slave shepherds who were devotees of Dionysus. We know that both of the slave revolts in Sicily had included at least partially the worship of Dionysus. We also do know that during the social war, which was the conflict that pitted Rome against some of its former Italian allies, the Italian allies had used Dionysus as symbol of liberation from Rome. So this is why the connection between Dionysus and Spartacus rebellion seems interesting. It very much fits with a tradition of lower class rebellion against Roman aristocracy. So to me that the fact that the wife of Spartacus, you know, the man who was about to launch the greatest slave rebellion in Roman history, the fact that she was a devotee of Dionysus doesn't really seem like a coincidence at all. It would be fun to go down this rabbit hole further and explore this further, but this is as far as the sources take us. You know, we know she was a devotee, we know the cult was central to slave rebellions, so it seems almost obvious that he played some kind of a role in the context of Spartacus' rebellion, but since we ultimately know nothing for sure, since the sources tell us nothing of Spartacus' ideology, this is as far as we can take it. So after this religious tangent, let's go back to those details that we do know for sure. 
So after being bought by Lentulus Batiatus, Spartacus was sent to Capua, which is roughly 120-some miles south of Rome, barely 10 miles away from Naples. The entire region of Campania where Naples and Capua were located was a gladiatorial center, and Capua was one of the main uh, capitals of uh, gladiatorial training. Gladiatorial combat in the arena was by far the most popular form of entertainment in the Roman world. It's true that gladiators were slaves, for the most part, not all of them actually, as I may discuss this in a different episode, but yeah, the majority of gladiators were slaves, and it's true that it went with the job description that there was a high likelihood of dying. But the part that they usually leave out in the movies is that there was also a high likelihood of making serious cash, of gaining a crazy level of celebrity, and enjoying some of the perks that went with it. Both men and women, for example, were said to last after gladiators, the way today you would have uh, groupies following rock stars. As paradoxical as this may sound, despite the fact that they were slaves, gladiators were actually the rock stars of their day. And when you consider that unless you were extremely rich, most lower-class people in the Roman world had fairly miserable, short lives, then the chance of being killed with a sword in the arena begins to look not so bad compared to most of the other lives you could have as a lower-class person. At least, you could taste glory and fun beyond the wildest imagination of most Roman citizens before getting your head chopped off. Now, in addition to combat in the arena, gladiators were also used as uh, enforcers, as bodyguards, as hitmen. Um, Some owners of gladiators would either use them in this capacity or they would rent them out for somebody else to use them in this fashion. There are actually quite a few cases in Roman history of uh, entire gangs made of gladiators who were rented out to one politician or another to either defend them or engage in political violence on their behalf. As I mentioned earlier, the name of the man who owned the school where Spartacus was sent was Lentulus Batiatus. In this school, um, Spartacus would meet uh, guys from Thrace, they were Gauls, they were Germans, probably there were quite a few of the kids of the Cimbri and Teutones who had been defeated just a few years earlier by the brilliant Roman general Marius. Incidentally, there's an amazing episode of hardcore history about this very topic. Check out uh, Dan Carlin's series on the fall of the Roman Republic. It's amazing. Uh, every time I listen to it, I'm blown away by how good that is. So there were probably also quite a few Italians there. Likely there were people from North Africa. Basically just about anywhere Romans had conquered, there would be people uh, represent... These people would end up as slaves and they would end up in some cases as gladiators if they look strong enough or hardy enough. So probably 
Spartacus ran into this multi-ethnic group of gladiators at this school. What we know is that some of these guys were planning an escape. Now, what we don't know is why these guys, when there really were no rebellions in so many other gladiatorial schools that existed throughout the Republic, was there something that triggered this particular reaction? No one knows. But we know that their plan was discovered, and 72 of them decided to act quickly before the inevitable crackdown against this attempted rebellion would, uh, would come against them. So what they did was they stormed the kitchen, and they grabbed kitchen knives, cooking skewers, and whatever other implements could be used as a weapon in order to try to make their escape. Why these? I mean, these guys were gladiators. They had access to weapons, so why do they have to turn to kitchen knives and stuff like this? Well, the owners of gladiatorial schools were not stupid. So the second training was over, you know, they would only hand out a few weapons at a time, have a few people train with actual weapons. Most of the time you would train with practice weapons that had dull edges, uh, the points were not as sharp in the swords, things like that. And the real weapons were most of the time safely locked away. So not having access to any real weapon, the gladiators have to improvise and grab what they can out of the kitchen. With these utensils, they are able to make their break out of the school. The guards at the school were either beaten down by the gladiator's superior fighting skills, or perhaps decided it was, they weren't getting paid enough uh, to stay and face some angry gladiators bent on freedom. So bottom lines, the gladiators escaped. And it's likely that uh, Spartacus' wife escaped with him from Batiato school. But this is where primary sources stop telling us anything about her. Right? The last reference comes here, then this is it. We don't know anything more about her. Once they got outside of the walls of the school, luck smiled on them really fast. They quickly ran into some wagons. They were loaded with weapons for a different gladiatorial school. So Spartacus and this man promptly seized these wagons, took the weapons, and they finally had something real in their hands, something that could be used uh, with better results than a simple kitchen knife. This incidentally was happening in the spring of the year 73 before Common Era. Now, in another thank you moment, the, the town of Capua decided to send, uh, to raise quickly a militia and to send this militia to try to stop the gladiators from taking flight. The militia ran into Spartacus and this man, who promptly defeated the militia rather handily, and said, thank you guys for bringing us these much better weapons. And so they took the weapons of the militia from them. It's like they had a chance to upgrade at every turn from kitchen utensils to gladiatorial weapons, from gladiatorial weapons to actual real soldiers' weapons. Now the whole business was beginning to get serious. Now they had acquired the tools to really do a proper revolt. Now in addition to Spartacus, there were 
two other main leaders, one named Crixus and one named Onomeus. We don't really know what the hierarchy or the deal was among them, like if each one of them commanded a certain number of men, if one of them had a higher position than others. Sources simply don't tell us. So now that they are well armed, the former gladiators promptly begin staging raids throughout the countryside. The historian Appian has a somewhat uncharitable view of the whole thing, but may not be wrong. Here is what Appian has to say. The vast majority of the fugitives, because of their servile nature, thought of nothing but blood and booty. And in another quote, contrary to the orders of their general, the fugitive slaves immediately began to rape young girls and married women. No, so what Appian is telling us is that Spartacus was, uh, didn't want, he was not particularly supportive of this idea of raping left and right, but he had a somewhat tentative hold on his men and he was powerless to stop them. That he did want to stop them, he tried to stop them, not quite successful. Again, in Appian's words, even though he repeatedly entreated them to stop. And to add strength to what Appian was saying, a quote by the historian Orosius, wherever they went, the slaves indiscriminately mixed slaughter, arson, theft, and rape. So what we gather from these passages is that Spartacus was against the wholesale rape taking place at this stage, but he wasn't exactly successful in stopping it. Now, a couple of things are interesting about this. One, the fact that the sources, Roman sources, are telling us that Spartacus was trying to stop this behavior. This is interesting because the sources are not really sympathetic to Spartacus. They don't try to portray him in a positive light. So the fact that they do tell us that there was a clash between him and this man over this issue is... Um, makes it credible, makes it sound like there was something going on here because so many of the primary sources have every interest in the world in painting Spartacus in the worst light possible. Uh, the fact that they don't hear and they assign the blame to his man rather than him is rather interesting. Now the other thing that's interesting about it is that in most of the movies or um, novels written about these events we do gather, you know, they tend to romanticize and idealize people engaged in a slave rebellion, and for good reasons. You know, it's like you see the, you know, we, we like the underdogs, we like to sympathize with the underdogs, so we like to think of these poor oppressed slaves who finally free themselves, and they are these uh, heroic, noble figures. Now, people are people. So the just because you are an oppressed slave doesn't mean that you're a nice person. Some were nice, I'm sure. Some, just like the way it happens if you take a large enough group of people, you're going to find some individuals who are amazing human beings and you're going to find a lot of them who are not. These seem to be what's going on here in this clash between Spartacus and at least some of his men. 
One thing on the other hand that Spartacus and his men did not disagree on was Spartacus' policies regarding what to do with the profits. Unlike previous slave leaders in the prior servile wars, who had immediately claimed titles as kings and put themselves in position of high leadership, Spartacus really not only didn't claim that kind of title, but on top of it, he decided to engage in something rather radical. He would divide up the profits from all the raiding in equal parts to be distributed equally among all members of the group. He would take the same share as the last guy in his crew. This clearly made him an attractive figure to many people who may have been on the fence deciding whether to join into this rebellion or not. So as his men were moving through the countryside and running into other slaves or other people who may have been free but they were not exactly in the, enjoying the greatest of conditions, Spartacus' policy of dividing up the profits in equal parts must have sure seemed attractive to quite a lot of people. Eventually what Spartacus and his men did was to retreat to Mount Vesuvius, which they had identified as a good defensible position. Mount Vesuvius is a volcano. At the time of Spartacus had been inactive for several centuries, but only 150 years later, Mount Vesuvius would suddenly wake up from its nap, remember that it was a volcano after all, and promptly unleash hell, destroying Pompeii and their Colonium. But that's, as I mentioned, 150 years in the future compared to Spartacus' time. During Spartacus' time, Mount Vesuvius was uh, covered in woods. The woods were full of game. The whole mountain was about 4,000 feet high. There were lots of farms in the area. Um, some of these farms were widely known for producing this amazing wine that was exported all the way to India. Now, there must be some good wine because in uh, prior to cars and modern ships and everything, moving something from southern Italy to India must have taken a hell of a lot of time. But in any case, Spartacus and this man felt great here. They had... Uh, a great defensive position, they had lots of farms, they could raid in the area, um, they felt pretty good about being here. In the meantime, the Romans were getting ready to send a force against them, but as it always happened anytime we're talking about fugitive slaves, no self-respecting Roman general wanted to go out and fight them, because ultimately there was nothing to gain from it. You know, fighting slaves brought no glory. I mean, if you won, you were supposed to win, and if you lost, it was embarrassing. And there was nothing to gain. There was very little plunder, since the only possessions that the slaves would have was something that was stolen from Roman citizens, which presumably you would have to return. So there really was no nothing to gain in fighting slaves, which is why usually every single time there's a slave rebellion, Romans tend to be real slow in getting organized and sending their best men forward. 
So the first guy they send, clearly is not one of their best men, is high up in the hierarchy, is a praetor, which is only, there were eight praetors for each year, and being a praetor was just one step down from being consuls, which was the highest possible office. So this one praetor by the name of Gaius Claudius Glaber was sent from Rome with about 3,000 men raised uh, through a militia. So Glaber and his 3,000 men arrived to Mount Vesuvius and promptly began laying siege to Spartacus and his men who were camped uh, toward the top of the mountain. So the Romans, there's really only one path that can allow you to walk your way from the top of the mountain to the bottom, and Glaber blocked it. He started, he placed this camp there, facing the path, so that there was no way that any of Spartacus' men could walk down and not be seen. You know, in blocking the path, Glaber is feel safe in having done the right thing and having trapped Spartacus. So Glaber is getting ready to mop up the remaining slaves and uh, be done with them. On top of everything else, Glaber enjoyed numerical superiority. We don't know exactly how many men Spartacus had with him, but he certainly didn't have 3,000. Uh, he, you know, we saw him start out with about 70 men uh, escaping the gladiatorial school. Clearly he had picked up more on the way since then, but we don't know exactly how many more. What we do know, though, is that he's outnumbered. He seemed to be outgeneraled since now he has been uh, he has been trapped. He's in a place with no way out, and perhaps these facts these factors are giving Glaber a exaggerated sense of confidence. He's getting a bit cocky, uh, too cocky for his own good. What does he do? What's his horrendous mistake he doesn't bother fortifying his camp which you know if there was a manual for roman generalship 101 probably would be right there on page one that every roman general is supposed to fortify their camp every single night and yes it's a lot of work yes no soldier wants to do this all the time but having a fortified camp is what guarantees that you cannot be caught by surprise. Glaber doesn't do it. He doesn't feel there's a need for it. And in some ways, you know, on paper, it looks like he may be right. I mean, what's Spartacus gonna do? You know, there's only one way he can come down and it's blocked and Glaber will see him if he tries. So how can he possibly get surprised? He can't, right? Well, this is where Spartacus' genius begins to show. Here is what he does. He notices that there are vines growing all along Mount Vesuvius. So he and this man cut these vines and begin to fashion ladders with them. They realize that they are able to tie the vines in such a way as to make ladders that are long enough to reach the bottom of the mountain. So here is what you have. Glaber and this man staying at the bottom of the mountain, watching the one path while at the same time Spartacus and this man are climbing from the back of Mount Vesuvius, staging this great escape unseen, and 
before the Romans have a chance to realize what's going on, Spartacus and his men invade their camp from their back, from behind, from a position that the Romans had no eyes on, did not expect an attack to come from there, and so have no ways to stop it. Sources don't tell us what happened to Glaber himself, whether he's killed or not in this battle. They do tell us that his 3,000 men are swept up in this and they are badly defeated. So, for the first time, Spartacus had his encounter with a serious Roman army and he passes the test with flying colors. As a result of this, several herdsmen, shepherds from this area decide that maybe it's not such a bad idea to join these former slaves, that there's something to be gained and that Spartacus had clearly demonstrated some serious ability in standing up to Rome's power. Rome was now in dire need to send someone else after Spartacus and his men. The honor fell to another praetor from the year 73 before Common Era, a man named Publius Varinius. Varinius immediately, upon taking the job, started recruiting among the lower classes who were living between Rome and Naples. Which incidentally, these were the very same poor people that Spartacus was also recruiting among. So there was almost a recruiting competition between the two sides going on. What started as a slave revolt was quickly becoming something else, including many free men, granted extremely poor free men I might add, but many free men being courted by both sides so that they would end up uh, fighting on both sides of the conflict. Verinius said with him a couple of legates, legates were basically sub-commanders right under him, named Furius and Cosinius. It seems likely that what they were trying to do was uh, to stage a three-pronged attack converging on Spartacus by different directions at the same time. But Spartacus solved this problem by attacking before they could all join together. So he went after Furious first, who had roughly about 2,000 men with him, and this clearly was not a problem with Spartacus, who wiped them out. Cosinius was next on the list. Cosinius had stopped at a villa belonging to some rich landowner friend of his, and he was relaxing, taking a bath, while Spartacus and his men climbed the walls and attacked the villa. Cosinius barely managed to run out of the bath, jump on a horse and escape, and he did manage to reach his soldiers' camp nearby. But that really didn't help him all that much, considering that Spartacus hunted him down and attacked the camp. Cosinius himself was killed in the battle that resulted from this, and many of his men as well, with some of the survivors escaping. So what Spartacus was doing was picking them apart one by one and preventing this uh, three-pronged maneuver that was supposed to trap him. He had already eliminated two of the three prongs right there and there. From this point forward, for during the rest of the fall of that year, uh, Varinius and Spartacus get in a few battles. Um, minor skirmishes, nothing to write home about. One of the main problems still facing Spartacus and his men 
was the relative lack of weapons. They were still, as they were adding more and more recruits to their numbers, which by the way, we're not exactly sure how many people he had with him at this juncture of the story, but as they were adding more and more people, well, they did just didn't have quite enough weapons for everybody. So in addition to taking the weapons from any Romans they would defeat, they would also resort to more primitive type of weapon-making tactics. For example, they would turn, they would grab sharp wooden stakes, they would harden them with fire uh, so that they could use them as spears. And in addition to the spears, Spartacus and his men did something that was, from a symbolic standpoint, it's as powerful as it gets, an extremely powerful gesture. What was it? Well, they used the chains that they had carried with them, those very same chains that had been used to keep them prisoners when they were slaves. They would break them, melt them, and reforge them into weapons. This is, think about it for a second, here you have the very tools of enslavement being turned into weapons to kill slave owners. There's some poetic justice in that, I would say. I mean, imagine the very chains that have been witness to years of suffering, to forced labor, to punishment, to, you know, all the ugly stuff that characterize slavery, were now recreated into something else, into swords, into spear points, into arrowheads, into the kind of stuff that would then be driven into the bodies of the people upholding the system of slavery. There, right there, is a powerful metaphorical middle finger that Spartacus and his men were showing to Roman aristocrats and the entire system of slavery. In the meantime, both sides were dealing with a few problems. The Romans seems to have been plagued with fevers and desertions. Uh, Spartacus and his men were chronically short on supplies and they regularly had to go on raiding missions for food which is great and all, except that these smaller groups of Spartacus men would then become easier targets for Roman attacks, so they always had to be on the lookout. It's at this point that Spartacus decided to do something that contributed to his legend. There's a moment here where he wanted to disengage from the Romans nearby. The problem is he couldn't very well do it without the Romans having something to say about that. So on a particularly dark night, Spartacus used the bodies of his fallen companions. He had them dug up, propped them on stakes. They were then planted into the ground, either right in front of the gate of his camps or nearby the fires, lit some big fires to make like their camp was heavily guarded while he and his men were actually fleeing the camp under the cover of darkness. So the Romans looking on would see these big fires, would see bodies, oh, what they thought were warm bodies, actually they weren't warm at all, they were just bodies, bodies propped up there, so it looked like there were guards watching the camp, it looked like everything was fine. But by the time morning came up, Varinius realized something was off. He, he noticed that there was no noise coming from Spartacus' camp, and that was highly unusual. So he sent his cavalry to check up on what's going on, and at this point he realized he had been played. 
Spartacus had managed to evacuate all of his men from the camp right under the Roman nose without them realizing what was going on. So that's, you know, guerrilla warfare 101 right there, played in the most masterful way. It's right around this time that the primary sources stop mentioning Onomeus. So some historians believe he may have been killed in one of these early battles, or maybe he left with a few companions. In either case, he sort of disappears from the history. And the two main leaders remaining are Crixus and Spartacus. It's at this time also that Varinius and Spartacus' forces finally clashed in one big battle. And this turned out to be another disaster for the Romans. Varinius managed to escape, but his men were destroyed. Uh, the triumph was so complete for Spartacus' men that they were able to capture just about everything that Varinius' army had taken with them. In addition to all the useful stuff, the weapons and the food and everything else, they also took the bundles of rods and axes, what the Romans referred to as the fasces, which were the symbols of command. Incidentally, this is where the term fascism comes from, from the fasces, these, uh, the axes and rods that uh, the men uh, forming the bodyguard of the praetor and the consuls would carry as a symbols of Roman power. In any case, these very symbols that were cherished by the Romans fell into the hands of Spartacus' men. In addition, they even managed to take Varinius' horse as well. Uh, just to tell you that really the only thing that Varinius managed to escape with was his life. His honor was long gone, and so was his army. After this big victory, rebel forces grew dramatically in numbers. More and more people joined Spartacus and his budding army. The lowest estimate for how many followers Spartacus had say that he may have had about 40,000. The highest estimates go as far up as, as 70,000. Now, that's an insanely high number that Spartacus had with him by the spring of 72 before Common Era. Remember, he only started out with about 70 gladiators, and now there were somewhere between 40,000 and 70,000 people with him. This is more than Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general, had with him when he crossed the Alps and wrecked havoc in Italy. This is similar to the numbers of uh, that Caesar had with him in his army when he conquered all of Gaul. Now, it's useful to remember that when speaking of followers of Spartacus, I think Twitter has co-opted the word, so anytime we speak of followers, Twitter comes to mind right away. Maybe I just spend too much time on social media, maybe it's just me, but that's how my brain works. It would be quite a respectable number to have between 40,000 and 70,000 Twitter followers. But these are not the kind of followers we're talking about. These were people who would literally live and die with you. This was a community on the move of at least 40,000 and perhaps more people living together for over two years, migrating up and down Italy, the shadow of Rome trailing them at every step. I try to imagine the whole collection of emotions, the mix of fear, exhilaration, excitement uh, that must have gone, that must have experienced by these people. Almost certainly 
babies were born during this time, people fell in love, friendships were formed and broken. And all of these events would be punctuated by those other events, the ones that history actually does remember, namely the battles against Rome's legions. But beside the battles, the entire range of human emotional experience was taking place among Spartacus guys. A lot of deep, powerful moments that are easily lost when one simply say, Spartacus had 40,000 followers going against Rome. This makes me think of the ending to one of the most quoted monologues in film history. I'm talking about the monologue delivered by the character played by Rutger Hauer in the movie Blade Runner. There's an extremely famous line that runs something like this. It says, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. And this seemed to be quite an apt commentary about history itself. The overwhelming majority of human experience is completely lost to history. What history manages to capture is barely the tip of the iceberg. You may remember who were the political leaders at a given point or what major war took place, but it often misses the mark when it comes to things that are perhaps more interesting and valuable than politics and wars, things that are closer to the heart of what it means to be human. Who knows what amazing, horrible, inspiring, heartbreaking things took place during those two years among Spartacus people. But enough with my musings about things that are lost forever, whether I like it or not, and let's go see what happened to Spartacus community after they spent fall and winter training and arming new recruits. It's at this point that they began raiding in the south again, uh, right around Campania, where the whole thing started. They attacked the town of Nola, which is where many of Sulla's friends, Sulla was the great aristocratic dictator of the previous generation in, in Roman history, Nola was the place where many of Sulla's friends had their villas. Now, the way they gained their villas had been through the process of the civil wars, through taking lands from poorer people. So, likely Spartacus and this man had a field day pillaging their villas now. When the rebels would uh, arrive in a given area, most of the local slaves there would use the occasion to turn on their masters as they remember all too well the pain and suffering they had endured under them. The whole system of slavery was kept in check thanks to violence and control. And now that violence and control were gone, since slave owners no longer had a monopoly over them, actually the opposite was true, since now it was uh, Spartacus' men who held the monopoly over violence and control, now the tables were flipped and slaves had a chance to take their revenge. Spartacus, in the meantime, continued his practice of economic egalitarianism, dividing up plunder in equal parts, which was certainly an excellent recruiting tactic, attracting more and more people to his side. Another thing he did is he prohibited the merchants that would come visit his camp. He prohibited from bringing gold and silver. He was totally fine with the merchants showing up to sell useful commodities, 
but he was radically against anything that was just luxury items. Some people suggest that he may have uh, influenced by Stoic philosophy in this regard. Uh, Stoic philosophy tended to argue about the corrupting influence of wealth. Some people think maybe he wasn't influenced by any philosophy at all, but just by his own experience. In either case, this anti-hierarchical, anti-wealth attitude in some way plant the seeds of the mythology of Spartacus, since this behavior was clearly in direct opposition to Rome's power structure. Among the things that Spartacus and his men did was they started taming wild horses that they found in order to create their own cavalry, and they used the insignia that they had taken from defeated Roman armies to for themselves. So in a sense, they were organizing as a fully-fledged army, as opposed to this ragtag group of rebels um, trying the best they could. The evidence indicates that Spartacus and Crixus were operating somewhat independently. Uh, With Crixus were mainly Gauls, Crixus himself was a Gaul, and he had mainly Gauls and Germans with him. Uh, Spartacus had pretty much everyone else. There's debate regarding why there was this split between Crixus and Spartacus. Some people suggest that there may have been some tension between the two. Other people think that there was no tension whatsoever, that it was just good thinking on their part, since obviously it would have been very difficult to find the resources for so many tens of thousands of people, and by splitting it was a little easier since they could tap into resources available in slightly different regions. By this point, the Senate in Rome has fully realized that they have to take this threat very seriously. So now they sent the consuls with the legions against the slave army. This is the same thing that they would have done in any major war. Sending the consuls at the head of the legions was what Romans did any time they took a war really seriously. The consuls in the year 72 were two guys with the usual long-winded Roman names. Specifically, we have Lucius Gellius Publicola and Neus Cornelius Lentulus Clodianus. Lentulus decided to go after Spartacus, whereas Gellius went after Crixus. Now, for those uh, Roman history fans among you, here's a little piece of trivia. Among the soldiers fighting in this consular army was an extremely young Cato. Cato will play an enormously important role in the latter days of the Roman Republic. He was among the men fighting against Spartacus. In any case, enough with the trivia, back to business. One of Gellius' commanders, a certain Quintus Arius, uh, one of the top commanders under Gellius, rather, he tracked down Crixus at a place in, uh, in modern-day Puglia near the Garganos Mountains and immediately attacked them in this very large battle in which Crixus himself was killed along with two-thirds of his army. Um, The remainder, one-third, escaped and rejoined with Spartacus. But this was an incredibly important moment because this was the first serious Roman victory 
in the war against uh, Spartacus and his men. Well, in this case, it's not exactly Spartacus, it's against Crixus, but close enough, it's against uh, the rebel slaves. Spartacus, however, kept going on, he kept moving north, and he attacked Lentulus at this time. He found him at a place that many historians believe is probably somewhere in the Apennine Mountains between Tuscany and Emilia. Some people say relatively close to modern-day Florence. And he quickly beat Lentulus and his army. And then he turned around and managed to find Gellius and beat him as well. He didn't destroy either one of those army, but he clearly beat both of them. What happens next is another one of those gut-wrenching, emotionally powerful moments in the history of Spartacus. Now that he has cleaned house with the two consular armies, he has defeated them, has captured a lot of prisoners, Spartacus turns his attention to staging funeral rituals for the for Crixus and for the men who had uh, died fighting alongside him. The funeral rituals, why is this such a big deal? Well, let's turn to the Roman historian Appian. Here is what Appian has to say. As an offering to the dead, Spartacus sacrificed 300 Roman prisoners on behalf of Crixus. Now, this tells us a couple of things. One, the fact that Spartacus is taking this time and energy to properly honor Crixus suggests that probably there was no big conflict between them, as some historians had suggested, but rather the other option, the one that they had simply split for logistical reasons, seems more likely. But more importantly, let's go back to the business of what Spartacus is doing, that sacrifice 300 Roman prisoners. Well, Appian is actually being kind of vague here. There's something more specific that Spartacus is doing. Yes, he's killing these guys, but how he's killing them is, uh, means a lot in the context of this story. Let's turn to another historian, Florus, for more details. He celebrated the deaths of his generals who had died in battle with funerary rituals usually reserved for regular army commanders. He ordered prisoners of war that his armies had captured to fight one another around the funeral pyres. So what is that Spartacus is doing? He's forcing Roman prisoners to become gladiators and fight each other to the death in honor of uh, the high-ranking men in the slave army who had died fighting. This is actually a very ancient Italian custom that has something to do with the very origin of uh, gladiatorial fights. Back the very earliest pieces of evidence that we have regarding the origins of gladiators indicate that during the funerals of extremely important people, a pair of gladiators was brought out and they would be invited to fight each other to the death, which was kind of a form of human sacrifice, except that one of the guys would survive, only the other one would die. The idea being that the shedding of blood in front of the grave would be uh, as an offering that went to feed the souls of the dead. It's a little bit of a vampiristic idea to some degree, but that's what many scholars believe was the origin 
of uh, what later would become gladiatorial contest. So Spartacus is going back to this story and is bringing Roman prisoners of wars, handing them short swords and ordering them to kill each other in honor of Crixus. In the words of the historian Horosius, those who had once been the spectacle were now to be the spectators. Because here is the scene. Here you have former gladiators among Spartacus' men who are now in the stands watching Romans kill each other. This is the ultimate role reversal. And this is completely unlike what we see in the movies. In the um, 1960 version of Spartacus, which had won many Academy Awards uh, uh, in the Kirk Douglas version, what we see there is uh, th there's an event that vaguely alludes to this. We see some of the rebel slaves forcing two Romans to fight each other as gladiators. But the character of Spartacus in the movie steps up and yells at this man and is saying, what? Are we becoming Romans? Have we learned nothing? And implying that Spartacus was morally opposed to gladiatorial games, regardless of who was the gladiator, uh, it wasn't just simply an issue of switching roles, he was against the principle of having grown men kill each other uh, for the amusement of others. Well, this is where movie Spartacus and the real historical Spartacus could not be any more different from each other. From the sound of it, the real historical Spartacus would have slapped around movie Spartacus as a big wimp and clearly did not share his same moral proclivities. In some way, the, the TV series Spartacus, which was produced by the Stars TV network, is a bit more accurate in this regard. Many historians have uh, shaken their accusatory academic fingers toward uh, the TV series Spartacus because they were turned off by the monstrous amount of sex and violence that they, they saw it as uh, um, being overly sensational, uh, over-dramatizing the sex and violence. And yeah, in all fairness, there's probably anything more sexually explicit than what you can see in the TV series would be straight up porn. And in terms of violence, it makes 300 look like a Disney movie. But aside from that, historically speaking, they actually hit the nail on the head on multiple occasions. And in this case, uh, in the story of the sacrifice of the Roman prisoners, they are much more accurate than the 1960 movie ever was. At this point, Spartacus and his forces are on the move again. They are heading toward northern Italy, reaching the area of modern-day Modena in the Emilia-Romagna region, uh, in the plains created by the Po River. This area was the headquarters of Gaius Cassius Longinus, who was the governor of Cisalpine Gaul and was the former consul from the previous year. His son, incidentally, would also be known as Cassius, will become one of Caesar's assassins in the years down the road. But that's far away in the future. For the time being, Gaius Cassius Longinus, the father, decided to use his troops to intercept Spartacus. And this is a really bad idea, since Spartacus and his army will crush Cassius Longinus' forces, barely allowing Cassius to escape with his life.
after this latest victory. By this point the road to the Alps is completely open. There is no Roman army left in the field that could stop him if Spartacus wanted to cross the Alps and escape from Italy. And this is where the sources here go crazy, because they don't know what Spartacus was planning, they don't know what he was thinking, and they can't quite make sense of what's about to happen next. Many people in fact believe that the whole movement north was an effort to escape from Italy and then have uh, everyone make their separate ways to their original homelands. If this is true, then what happens next is a complete mystery, because the road is wide open, but rather than crossing, Spartacus and his men turn around. Why? Well, we have no idea. It's a complete mystery. Some think that Spartacus' men may have had uh, success go to their heads. They have been feeling like, we can beat the Romans anytime we want, so... They decided, mm, maybe leaving Italy is not such a good idea, let's just turn around and raid the whole thing again, we're invincible anyway. This is what ancient sources hint at. They say that they got too greedy, they say that they let, they let success get to their heads. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Other people suggest that his men may have not have known that crossing the Alps was Spartacus' plan all along. And once they realized what was about to happen and they were faced with the enormity of mountain crossing, uh, crossing the Alps is definitely no easy feat, then they decided against it. There's absolutely no way to prove any of this theory. Uh, some people again speculate that Spartacus perhaps received news that those Thracians allied to Mithridates Mithridates was a king in the east who had been rebelling against Rome. Well, Spartacus received news that those Thracians had been losing against the Romans at this time, and so there really was no more safety in going back to Thrace. Other people suggest this theory is not supported, but th the fact is no one knows why they went all the way up Italy, and no one knows why they turn around in 72 BCE and start making their way south again. Everyone is making up stuff based on no evidence. The historian Schiavone suggests that Spartacus was not planning to escape after all, uh, because had that been the goal, it really made no sense to try to be at the head of this huge army and march the way across Italy. Schiavone says, look, if you want to get out of Italy, it would have been way easier to move quickly with a few friends and escape any attention rather than have this big huge army that's obviously very visible that the Romans are never gonna miss. Uh, so if the goal is to get out, that's something that's accomplished um, in a much more effective fashion by running with a few friends, not by leading this giant army. He has a good point, that makes sense, and of course it would have been easier not to attract attention but again, this is where speculation kicks in. Schiavone goes on suggesting that perhaps uh, uh, all the talk about Spartacus' predestination for a great destiny. Remember the story about his wife's prophecy after the snake had been wrapped around Spartacus' head? Well, maybe all of this talk had made the Spartacus want to challenge Rome 
had gone to his head and he had decided that he had some greater mission to fulfill in Italy. Again, this is a fun theory, but there's no way to prove it. And that's the problem we run in when primary sources are so heavily one-sided that they tell us nothing about what Spartacus was thinking, what he was planning. Um, they just give us nothing about this. The fact that Spartacus' army turns around and returns in the direction of Rome does not do wonders in calming down the spirits of Roman citizens, but rather probably drove up the sales of adult diapers in the city. In the words of Orosius, terror spread through the city of Rome, just as it had in the time when Hannibal had threatened its gates. Some people suggest that perhaps Spartacus was planning on attacking Rome, and yet Spartacus will not go anywhere close to Rome, or rather he passed nearby, but he doesn't stop, doesn't even try to attack Rome. This time, however, there's no mystery in this story. Um, the people who wonder, hey, he had Rome at his mercy, there was no army that could stand in his way by now, and he did nothing. Why, why, why? Well, there's a very obvious reason. Rome's walls were 13 feet thick and over 30 feet high. Spartacus had no siege engines. He, had, he lacked the means to attack Rome. Romans could barricade themselves behind the walls and wait it out. If another possibility is true, and Spartacus was trying to recruit Italian cities to his cause in order to start a full-on civil war, then he clearly failed at this, because despite all the victories in the field, he did not have much luck in wrestling any of the Italian allies away from Rome. He got a lot of poor people to join him, but no cities ever decided to throw their lot with him. In the meantime, just to flex his muscles, Spartacus wipe out a column sent by the consuls to try to fight him again. Uh, this seems to be a pattern by now, so a climate of fear pervades Rome, and justifiably so. This is perhaps where it's worth addressing one of the misconceptions that movies have spread. The modern Spartacus mythology argues that Spartacus was trying to abolish slavery that he was some kind of high-minded reformer a la Martin Luther King. Okay, maybe not exactly Martin Luther King. Picture him, Martin Luther King was fond of tearing to pieces his enemies, so more of a cross between Martin Luther King and Conan the Barbarian, perhaps. But regardless, this is simply not true. You know, the scholar Eric Grun writes, I quote, There is no sign that they were motivated by ideological considerations to overturn the social structure. And again in another passage he says, no suggestion emerges anywhere in the sources that the rebels were motivated by idealistic dreams of the equality of slave and free. In other words, Spartacus and, their, and all of his men clearly wanted their freedom but maybe they weren't all that interested in abolishing slavery. It seems from the evidence that Spartacus and these guys were quite happy flipping the script and enslaving Romans, 
they were more than happy to exchange roles from slaves to uh, slave owners, but not really to abolish slavery altogether. Uh, no ancient sources even hint that Spartacus wanted the abolition of slavery. This is a modern invention that just starts showing up in the movies, um, not something that seemed to belong to the history of Spartacus. By the autumn of 72 before Common Era, the Roman people have had it with the consuls. They've had such a poor showing in the field that they are recalled and the Senate and the people decide to give their power uh, to take the fight to Spartacus to a Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus is, should be a familiar name to any scholars of Roman history because not only was he one of the future triumvirs who along with Pompey and Caesar would end up shaping the destiny of the Roman Republic in the years to come, he was also likely the wealthiest man in Rome. Uh, he was a speculator, he came from money, he, he had money, you know, his family was rich to begin with, and then he had made even more money through a whole variety of schemes. For example, one thing that Crassus used to do is he had his own personal fire brigade, uh, slaves he had trained to put out fires, and what he would do is anytime he heard that there was a fire in the city of Rome, he would send his fire brigade to stand right next to the building that was in flame. He would quickly run up to the owner of the building and make him a deal. Say, look, you want to sell me this building for whatever price essentially Crassus asked? Now, many owners felt they were scared. They felt that they were about to lose everything. Uh, what if the whole building went up in flame? You know, there was no public fire brigade in Rome at this time. There was no one else stepping in. So what if they were going to just lose everything? Rather than losing everything, they could get something from Crassus. Now, it wasn't market value, it wasn't a good offer, but it was better than zero in the pile of ashes. So in plenty of cases, Crassus would buy this property for extremely cheap, and the second the ink was on the paper, he would turn his fire brigade loose, put out the fire, and managed to acquire this property for next to nothing, and he could now rent it and make a bunch more money. His whole game was to make bank and then turn this money into political influence uh, in a variety of ways, by making loans to rich senators, by buying votes from the poor. He basically was throwing his money around to make sure that everyone owed him favors. It is by this point that the Senate and the people decided to give him the power to go fight Spartacus. What's interesting is that Crassus at this time was a private citizen. He was not some government official or high ranking. He was just a regular private citizen. Well, not quite regular, perhaps an incredibly wealthy one but was given the power to raise his own army by the Senate. And clearly Crassus was one of the very few men who could afford to do such a thing. In his earlier years, Crassus had gone through his fair share of traumatic experiences. As a young man, he had seen his own father's head hanging from the speaker's platform in the forum. His father had been a victim of uh, the crackdown instigated by Marius, the legendary Roman general, 
against his political opponents. So logically, Crassus had promptly enrolled to serve under Sulla, who was Mario's main rival during the civil war between these two head figures in the early days of the in the earlier days of the Roman Republic. One thing that Sulla had done during the civil war, particularly once he started winning and gaining power throughout Italy, Sulla started creating what were known as the proscription lists. The proscription lists were basically lists of men who were to be killed as enemies of the state, and their, their property was to be sold at auctions. You know, once their name ended up on a proscription list, anybody could kill them with impunity. And so I turned political murder into good business, because essentially after eliminating his enemies, he could sell their property at these auctions at a fair, fairly discounted price. And, but you know, it's not like it was his money, he's selling somebody else's property and making bank in the process. Well, always having a good eye for business, Crassus also sees a good deal when he sees one, so he would regularly attend these auctions and bought much of this property that was being sold at crazy discount rates. So by now he had accumulated so much capital that he could afford to field six legions plus the ones from Gellius and Lentulus. So he had something in the neighborhood of 40,000 men under him. This is where the story gets juicy. Crassus decided to send one of his legates, a man by the name of Mommius, to encircle Spartacus. However, he ordered him, do not engage yet. Start pressing him, get close to him, but do not fight. Mummius, however, had other ideas. He decided to try to gain glory for himself by doing the very thing that Crassus told him not to do. So Mummius disobeyed orders and attacked Spartacus' forces. In doing so, he promptly joined a long list of Roman commanders who had tried their hand with Spartacus and got badly beat. Many of Mummius' men were killed, and some saved themselves by throwing down their weapons and running away, which was considered highly shameful according to the military ethics of the time. When news of this event reached Crassus, he had smoke coming out of his ears. We can safely say that Crassus was not overly pleased with the news that his men had disobeyed his orders and were routed in the field. So he decided to send a message by reviving an ancient punishment that had fallen out of use for a long time by now. What I'm talking about is something the Romans refer to as decimation. Now, what could be so terrible about something with such a nerdy name? Decimation? Really? What is it? Sound like a math problem or something? Well, what decimation was all about, in this case at least, is that 500 of Mommius soldiers who had run away from the field were divided into groups of 10 and forced to draw lots. So 500 men divided into groups of 10, drawing lots. 9 out of 10 would be spared. They would draw identical color lots and that means they would get to live. But one out of them would pick the different color lot. His destiny was to be beaten to death by the other nine. 
let's slow this down for a second and really picture this. What it must have felt like to cast lots, knowing that your life is on the line. And just once you are elated because you found out that you are among the lucky ones, and you are among the ones who are to be spared, you are handed a stick and ordered to beat to death one of your fellow soldiers. Anyone who has served in the military knows that you usually form some very strong bonds with those who serve with you. I mean, you always hear is like one of the classic things in most armies that most people fight not necessarily in the name of some greater cause, they are fighting for their brothers in arms, they are fighting for those next to them. So you can picture the psychological atrocity of being allowed to live, but only at the price of bashing the brain of your comrade, of your friend, into the dirt. All the while knowing full well that it could have been the opposite, that it could have been them beating you to death, had the lots turned out different. If, if there was a recipe for PTSD, I think this would nail it perfectly. You can only imagine what the dreams of the surviving men were probably made of in the years to come. But for Crassus, this was a way to show he wasn't playing around and that his orders were to be taken seriously. This bloody ritual was Crassus' ideas of boosting morale. After this, Crassus began to win a few small engagements as he made his way south. Um, he managed to beat a group of 10,000 rebels who had split from Spartacus' main group. This was the first Roman victory since they had beat Crixus. This is actually the second Roman victory overall since so far they hadn't had a whole lot of luck against Spartacus' men. By now, Spartacus is beginning to feel like the, he's getting trapped into the south. Um, Crassus is beginning to close the circle around him and push him further and further south into Italy. So Spartacus decides to jump and try to cross into Sicily. Uh, leave Italy, leave the mainland, cross into Sicily. And in an effort to do this, he made a deal with some uh, Cilician pirates who operated in the area to take them to Sicily in exchange for money. The plan probably was to take over the island, since it would, Sicily made for a excellent defensive positions being located far away from the mainland. And we don't know exactly why, it's not clear, but the pirates betrayed Spartacus and went back on their wards and left him stranded. Did they have a deal with the governor of Sicily or perhaps with Crassus? Did uh, they simply not get as much money as they wanted? Did... We don't know why, but bottom line is Spartacus is stuck on the southern coast of Italy. He can see Sicily just... Sicily, at the thinnest spot between Sicily and the mainland of Italy, is only it's a tiny bit less than three miles. Only three miles. I mean, you could probably swim three miles. Now, that's an intense swim, but it can be done. So why didn't they do it? Well, multiple reasons. Problem number one is that the strait between Sicily and Italy, yes, it was small, but it was legendary for how dangerous it was because of currents and riptides. 
and even if by some miracles most of his men could make the swim, by the time they reached the beach, they would have met by Verres' men. Verres was the governor of Sicily at this time, and they would have picked them apart as Spartacus' men would have emerged from the sea, worn out from this crazy heavy swim, and they would have been destroyed. So the Sicilian option is fading away. There's a last attempt. Spartacus' men try to fashion some rafts, but by now it's late autumn, so the sea is very stormy, the waves are very tall. The first few rafts that they put into the water, they get crushed by the waves, and they realize that there's no going to Sicily at this time. The people in the Roman assembly were getting a little edgy even with Crassus. Now, he had performed better than previous commanders, but things were not moving fast enough for their liking. So the people in the assembly decided to vote to recall the general Pompey, who had been uh, busy fighting in Spain. The historian Plutarch tells us that Crassus had asked for Pompey's recall himself, but it's very likely that Crassus knew that they were going to recall Pompey anyway, so he probably tried to save a face by making it look like he was building an alliance. He probably wasn't happy about it. I mean, Roman generals were notorious for being primarily out for themselves. The whole point of campaigning was to build a name for yourself, gain honor, gain glory, gain prestige that would later translate into um, political appointments. So clearly nobody wanted to share it with another general. Other generals, even if they were on the same side, if they were all serving Rome, were competitors. Now, things got even worse for Crassus, because not only are they recalling Pompey, but they also vote to recall a Marcus Terentius Varro Locullus. We'll call him Locullus for simplicity's sake, because that's way too many names. He was also recalled from... Uh, he had been... Uh, he was the governor of Macedonia, and um, they recall him with his forces. So by now there's gonna be three generals in the field, Pompey, Crassus, and Locollus, who are all rushing to try to be the one to put an end to Spartacus' revolt. In an effort to finish things quickly, before Pompey and Locollus could get there, Crassus built a wall to try to prevent Spartacus from breaking through and force him to chase him all over Italy. He was trying to keep him confined to the bottom of Italy. So he built this wall that supposedly was 35 miles long from one side to the other of one of the thinnest parts of Italy. When we say 35 miles long, probably this does not mean that he built 35 miles of fortifications, which would have been a huge undertaking that would have taken forever. Because the reality is that most of those 35 miles were impossible to cross due to natural formations. So probably Crassus built a few miles in between those spots that were impossible to cross, in the only areas in those miles where Spartacus could have made, uh, could have pushed his people through. Realizing what's going on, Spartacus turns north and smashes into the wall and he sits there trying to figure out how to break through. In the meantime, as he's pondering what to do, 
it is another moment in which he demonstrates he's not playing around either. In full view of the Romans' man in the wall, Spartacus orders his men to bring out a Roman prisoner of war and had him crucified in the space between the two camps. This was probably a message to the Romans, or could have even been a message to his own men, showing them that there would be no mercy for the defeated side, and if they were going to lose, this is probably what they could expect from the Romans. Some modern historians have suggested that this story perhaps was Roman propaganda, trying to kind of blacken Spartacus' reputation. Other people think it's actually very fitting with the general context of what was going on, so maybe there was no slander at all and Spartacus just did this. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that Spartacus and his followers were like caged animals by now. The noose was getting tighter and tighter around them, and they badly needed to pass the wall. What to do, what to do? Well, if you recall, Spartacus has a 10-degree black belt in the art of creatively making use of corpses. Remember the time when the Romans were watching his camps and he wanted to break free? So he had propped the corpses of friends and foes to make it look like his camp was still manned while he and his people were making their escape. Well, Spartacus still held an ace up his sleeve when it came to using corpses to his advantage. Here's a Game of Thrones kind of image for you. During a windy, snowy winter night, his men used the corpse of defeated enemies to fill the ditch that the Romans had excavated in front of the wall. So they fill this ditch and then they accumulate even more bodies, building their own wall made of dead bodies. In this way, Spartacus and his people climb on this wall of dead bodies as a ladder to climb over the uh, poorly watched section of uh, Crassus' wall. Again, the image defies, I don't know, it's just really mind-boggling. Think again, a wall made of human bodies that they climb over to get over the fortifications and escape from Crassus' trap. This is, uh, goes again to support my theory that perhaps George R.R. R. Martin's uh, babysitter was telling him these stories when he was, uh, as, uh, as bedtime stories when he was a kid. At this point, Spartacus' forces break up. Again, there's the usual question of whether they break up because of some kind of disagreement among them, or is this part of a strategy to make it easier to recruit in different direction, gain supplies in different direction. And again, we have no idea what the answer is. But we do know that one group under, mainly made of Gauls and Germans, under Castus and Gannicus, they split from Spartacus' main body. Crassus takes this as a Christmas present. He immediately mobilizes his army to go after Castus and Gannicus and attack them. The historian Sallust tells us that there were a couple of Celtic women with um, Castus and Gannicus, who, I'm going to quote Sallust, he said they were 
fulfilling their monthly things. Now, that's a rather ambiguous statement. What exactly were their monthly things? This has been interpreted typically in one of two ways. Either he's talking about some kind of religious rituals, or some people interpret it as a reference to a tradition that women on their period would stay away from everyone else. This incidental is one of the most common taboos that existed in ancient societies. There was this notion, uh, very widespread in many parts of the world, there was this idea that women on their period would uh, go off in seclusion, away from everybody else. Uh, usually this is not interpreted to be a negative thing about menstruation, uh, but this would take me too long. Uh, I would go down a rabbit hole and I would end up in a long tangent to try to explain all the meaning of it. Let's leave it as is. So for whatever reason, whether for religious reasons or for a taboo related to menstruation, these women were off away from the main camp. And in this situation, they see Crassus' men coming to attack. So they are able to run back warn their men that an attack is coming so the Castus and Gannicus men get ready for battle. The battle is brutally hard. It's uh, one of the hardest battles that Crassus had ever fought up until this point. Initially the battle is kind of inconclusive, neither side can gain uh, a decisive advantage, but eventually Crassus came up on top and managed to crush them. The story goes that they were something in the neighborhood of 12,000 men who were killed from um, Castus and Gannicus forces. The leaders of this group, the above-mentioned Castus and Gannicus, died here, and so did most of their men. The historian Plutarch tells that only two men out of the thousands who died had wounds on their back. What he means by that is that every one of them had met death fighting, not running away. Uh, in Plutarch's own words, he, meaning Crassus, he later discovered that only two of them had wounds on their backs. All the others had stood their ground in the line of battle and had died fighting the Romans. So these guys were clearly crazy brave, but this did not save them from a miserable end. This was a huge victory for Crassus. Not only was he able to score one of the biggest victories so far by the Romans, but he was also able to recover countless battle banners, fasces, eagle insignia, you know, those kind of things that uh, Roman armies very much cherished as symbols of their units, and in this way was able to regain some honor for the Roman army. This seemed almost to be part of a cycle. We have seen it a couple of times already that a group splits away from the main body of people traveling with Spartacus. These splinter groups get found by the Romans, they get beat, then Spartacus tracks down the Roman and gain revenge. Then another group splits, they get beat, and Spartacus gain revenge. This happens over and over again, and faithful to the script, Spartacus will repeat the same story here. He arrives at the end of the battle, saving some of the survivors um, from Castus and Gannicus' side, 
and quickly turns and goes after some of Crassus' lieutenants, Quintius and Scrofa, beating them handily. But this is where destiny stops smiling at him. Spartacus turns and heads toward uh, the modern city of Brindisi, but as he's moving in that direction, he receives news that Marcus Lucullus has just landed there with his army. This is the first signal that the game is almost up. Now he's getting trapped between Crassus, between Lucullus, Pompey is on his way. Things are really not looking good for Spartacus at this moment. Because of this, he chooses to take destiny in his own hands and fight before Pompey and Locollos arrive. He figures, I can fight one big battle with Crassus, I don't really need to have a big battle with Crassus and Pompey and Locollos all at the same time. By now, Spartacus had probably little over 30,000 men under his command. Crassus had uh, likely a few thousand more, so he had a slight numerical advantage, but not a huge one. It seems quite likely that many people in Spartacus' camp were aware of the fact that they were doomed, that this was the end coming. It was clear that the news was tightening around them, and yet they decided to go down fighting against Crassus. Before the beginning of a battle, Spartacus engaged in another one of these very symbolic acts for which he is remembered. When they brought him his horse, which he usually rode into battle, Spartacus refused the horse, saying that if they would win the battle on that day, then he would have plenty of horses available taken from the enemy. And if they lost, then he would have no need for a horse at all meaning he would embrace death in battle. This was either victory or death. There was no other outcome. At the beginning of the battle, it seems that Spartacus edged his bet on one thing. He was going to look for Crassus and kill him himself. This is a quite a crazy story, if you think about it. Here you have the commander of an army looking for the other enemy commander in the fields among tens of thousands of people trying to kill each other. In many ways, this looked like a suicide mission. Uh, the odds are really slim. At the same time, it's not like they had too many other possibilities. So it's like, you can't make this stuff up. You know, this is a deed straight out of some epic warrior poem. And Spartacus almost lives up to it. He cut his way uh, toward Crassus get so close to him that he managed to kill single-handedly two centurions who are protecting Crassus. He keeps going, fighting his heart out. By this point, though, all the men who had uh, supported this, um, this mission have either been killed along the way or have decided to turn back. So Spartacus by now is left almost alone in the middle of the Romans. And just as he's getting closer to Crassus, he takes a spear through the thigh. He keeps fighting despite this, but is eventually killed by many enemies. This is what Florus had to say. As was appropriate for a man commanded by a gladiator, they all fought to the very end, Sinemisho, 
Cinemisho, um, this is a reference to gladiatorial combat. As a gladiator, if you are wounded and felt that the other gladiator had your number, you could try begging for mercy. Uh, what you would do is that you would lift up your finger and at that point the enemy, the enemy gladiator could decide to spare you and then it became up to the editor of the games to decide whether they thought you fought well enough and you deserve to live another day or not. So lifting up the finger begging for mercy is... Uh, if you guys watch modern mixed martial arts, that's the equivalent of tapping out in an MMA match. Uh, it's like if somebody has you in an armbar or a leg lock or a choke, rather than having your limbs broken or getting choked unconscious, you can always tap out and ask for mercy. So if you want to translate it in modern terms, Floro's passage would read as, as was appropriate for men commanded by a gladiator, they fought to the very end without tapping out. And then, Floros adds, Spartacus himself died fighting bravely at the front of his men, just like a true general. It's funny how even historians writing from a Roman standpoint can't seem to help themselves and end up admiring Spartacus. Despite the fact that he was their enemy, despite their hatred for rebellious slaves, they can't help but admiring the degree of bravery demonstrated by Spartacus and this man. But bravery or not, the outcome of the battle is not a good one for Spartacus' men. Most of his army is destroyed in the field. By the end of it all, Crassus' men are able to recover five Roman eagles and 26 battle standards. If you think that each cohort within the Roman army had its own standard, and each league and each one of the eagles represented one legion, being able to recapture five eagles and 26 battle standards, this, this was a living representation of multiple defeats by Roman army at the hands of Spartacus' men. I mean, Roman soldiers worshipped their standards. Having their eagles captured was a huge disgrace for them. There's plenty of tales of Roman soldiers chasing the standards in the middle of enemies against overwhelming odds because they were ready to do anything to prevent their capture. So the fact that Spartacus had been able to capture so many of them is a testament to how crushing he had been in defeating Roman armies. In this particular battle, the Romans lost about a thousand men or so which is really not that much when you consider what they had just been able to achieve. Oddly enough, the body of Spartacus was never found. You know, the sources do tell us that they saw Spartacus die in battle, but yet the body will... Uh, Crassus will have his men look all over for, for him and they don't find him. In either case, the idea that was popularized starting in the 1960 Spartacus movie, that Spartacus was crucified, like he was captured and crucified, this has nothing to do with history. This is only to strengthen the Christian symbolism that um, the filmmakers of the 1960 version of Spartacus were trying to push. Because essentially what, again, just to show you how this has little to do with history and a lot to do with the specific conditions that filmmakers were dealing with, 
1960 movie was a really dangerous, scary movie to make. Because many people in the US had thought that Spartacus was some kind of a communist figure. Uh, there was even a boycott against the movie. And Universal Studios was investing $12 million, which at that time was a whole lot of money. On a director who was not well known, on a screenwriter who had been blacklisted, on a story based on a novel that many people believe to be Marxist. So the studios trying to figure out a way to minimize the already huge risks they were taking. The head of Universal Studio, Ed Moll, had forced many changes, including probably this idea of, well, let's make Spartacus die on a cross at the end so we can sort of co-opt some Christian symbolism, making how can one day accuse him of being communist if we make him Christ-like? And Edmund was known for a hilarious line that tells you a lot about movie making. He had said, Deep ideas are nice to have in a picture, but what counts is audience appeal. Well, in any case, long story short, the movie invention of Spartacus dying on a cross is just that. It's an invention. It has nothing to do with the actual biography of Spartacus. So Spartacus loses the war ends up dying, but paradoxically gets to be remembered more than most of his opponents. I mean, who makes movies about Crassus? You know, Crassus is the kind of guy that you know if you are really serious in studying Roman history. But the mythology that gets to be built around Spartacus is something that Crassus will never have, in, uh, not in literature, not in movies, not in anything else. The story then goes on with a few of Spartacus' men being able to escape and continuing some micro-rebellions for several years to come. Like, still a decade later, there were some of Spartacus' men fighting in southern Italy. But we're talking very small potatoes here, you know, nothing compared to the huge war that they have been involved in. What happens to the rest of Spartacus' men, the ones who don't end up in this tiny group of uh, bandits who are going to be active years down the road, who don't die on the battlefield? Well, a few things happen. First, we have a group of survivors, about 5,000 of them, escaping, running through away in the mountains, and smashing into Pompey's incoming army. And Pompey finished them off somewhere in Tuscany. And he immediately wrote a letter to the Senate saying, I arrived, I finished the war, uh, you can thank me later, I'm the man, I'm the one who put the exclamation point at the end of it all, it's over, now all thanks to me. <laughs> Which is kind of funny when you think about it, because Pompey hasn't really been part of the war at all. Crassus now is the guy who has done the big job. Pompey shows up at the very end, kill a tiny group of um, out of Spartacus army and claims to be, I'm the one, I'm the one who did it all. In some way this reminds me of a scene from the Lord of the Rings movies. In the second one, the two towers, there's this scene where Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf are having a competition during battle for who gets to kill most of the enemies. And so throughout the battle, they are teasing each other. They are, you know, they keep advertising their own body count. It's like, hey, I'm ahead of you now. I killed so many. They keep this up throughout the entire battle. 
By the end of the battle they meet each other and Gimli the dwarf announces his body count which is uh, which puts him ahead by one over Legolas the elf and no sooner does Gimli manage to get the words out saying that he won and that's the body count that Legolas pull out an arrow and shoots down an enemy who was looked like he was dead and he was right next to where Gimli was sitting. Gimli looked at him like, what are you doing? And Legolas said, oh, I killed that guy. You know, he was still twitching. He was still alive. And Gimli's like, what are you talking about? He was twitching because he had my axe stuck in his brain. But Legolas is like, well, not quite. I think there was still some movement there. So counts for me. Sorry. That's kind of what Pompey is doing here. He's uh, really claiming a victory that doesn't belong to him. This is a classic example of the competition that existed between Roman generals. At this moment, Crassus is mad as he could be. He's furious with Pompey claiming credit. So what he does is he grabs some 6,000 men among the prisoners he had taken following the end of the battle with Spartacus. The number is probably not a coincidence. If you recall, Pompey had just killed 5,000 men so the fact that Crassus grabs 6,000 may be an attempt to one-up Pompey. And what does he do with these 6,000 people? I quote from primary sources, he crucified along the whole length of the highway that ran from Capua to Rome. This is probably referring to the Appian Way, and the distance from Capua to Rome was about 125 miles, give or take a few. So that means that there was one crucified body every 30 to 40 yards between uh, Capua and Rome. Crucifixion was a horrible death. Before you were even crucified, you would be heavily flogged. And the flogging was designed to bring you as close to dying as possible before you're actually nailed to a cross. The scourging would uh, be so intense that would often expose the bones there are ancient sources are unambiguous in considering crucifixion pretty much the worst form of uh, capital punishment. Origen referred to crucifixion as the utterly vile death of the cross. Uh, Josephus speaks of crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, some people pronounced the Latin Cicero, there's disagreement on that in any case. Cicero said that most cruel and disgusting penalty, and in another passage he refers to crucifixion as the ultimate punishment. There's no disagreement here, the crucifixion was pretty much as bad, uh, even among Romans who had the never-ending fantasy and imagination when it came to dealing horrendous punishments. Crucifixion was pretty much the worst that could happen. It's very likely that among the 6,000 people crucified, there are obviously men, but there are probably also women and kids, since there really was no special treatment for them uh, within the Roman justice system. We can imagine that among 6,000 people being crucified, there was a whole range of reaction from the obvious, people screaming in agony, uh, to the less obvious. It's likely that out of 6,000 people, some may have been uh, 
trying to show defiance, trying to laugh and sing victory songs in defiance of what was going on. No one knows, but with 6,000 people, probably all range of possible reactions to crucifixion took place. It's likely that some people tried to bribe some of the soldiers to stab them and put an end to their sufferings or to break their legs, causing them to choke and be killed quickly, rather than being driven mad by the heat and pain and thirst that would take uh, usually quite a while before it killed you. The fact that all these people were nailed to crosses along the main highway connecting Capua to Rome is not a coincidence. This was Crassus sending a public message. It was the equivalent of his public service announcement. He was letting people know, this is what happens if you rebel against Rome. This is what happens if you come after me, if you fight against Crassus. For him, it was a great public relation tool. The bodies of the defeated former slaves were blank canvas for him to write his message, his statement of power and domination, uh, open to be seen by anybody walking along the road. After this, never again will we see a large-scale slave rebellion in the Roman world. I don't think I need to explain why. I mean, Spartacus men had beaten the odds and defeated many Roman armies, and yet they still lost at the end. 6,000 of them at their end nailed to crosses, thousands more died in battle. This is clearly more than enough to convince most people the large-scale large rebellions were really not the way to go. As I promised in the beginning, everyone in this story ends up badly. Spartacus' men are far from the only ones. So let's go down the list. The Cilician pirates who had betrayed Spartacus were crushed by Pompey in the years to come. Pompey will wage this heavy campaign and by the time he's done with it, he has either enslaved them or nailed them to crosses or killed them in battle. So these guys will be history. Pompey and Crassus had their own curious stories. Neither one of them disbanded their legions after their victory over Spartacus' men. And both of them went to camp right outside of Rome, forcing the Senate through the implicit threat of violence to make them consuls. There was a lot of fear of civil war going on, and both of them wanted to be honored and recognized, and they got what they wanted. After this, they went on to have some glorious careers. So where's the horrible ending, you might say? Well, just be patient. Winning battles in the ancient world was the equivalent of winning a heavyweight championship fight. Great, you won, but ultimately it's temporary glory. Sooner or later, if you stay in the game long enough, someone else is gonna come up and they will be better or stronger or luckier than you, and they will beat you. And losing battles in the ancient world didn't simply mean that you lose the title, unlike a heavyweight championship fight. It means that very likely your head would end up on a pike. Speaking of heads ending up on someone else's pikes, Pompey will lose his head, literally, 
no metaphor involved there, in Egypt a few years later, after he's lost the civil war against Caesar, he's now a broken man fleeing away from Caesar, and Pompey will be killed, Caesar will also be killed, and Caesar killers will also be killed under the file. doesn't really matter which side you pick in uh, this period of Roman history. The odds are that karma will catch up and you will meet a very violent death. What about Crassus? Well, Crassus deserves his own special ending. About roughly 16 years after these events, Crassus went to fight against Parthia. Parthia was a modern-day Middle East. After a, couple of, uh, after a couple of years in the field, in the year 53 before Common Era, Crassus engaged in a large battle against the Parthians. The Parthian cavalry surrounded a unit that was commanded by Crassus' son. They defeated them, they killed Crassus' son, cut off his head, and paraded it in front of Roman lines, just to make sure Crassus would see the head of his son stuck on a spear. Shortly after this, the Parthians attack the main body under Crassus and are able to kill him. They quickly cut off his head along with his right hand and send it quickly to the Parthian king, who was staying uh, next to would-be modern-day Baghdad. The second Crassus head and right hand arrive in Baghdad, they will be used as props in a performance of what play? Euripides' tragedy, the Bacche. This was a play that I referred to earlier. This was a play about a king who has his head cut off by a Dionysus followers because he had persecuted the Dionysian cult. This is the perfect symbolism for Dionysus' revenge. Here you have Crassus, a man who had beaten a slave army, led by Spartacus, a man whose wife was a, priest of was a priestess of Dionysus, and Crassus ended up with his head cut off, and his head ended up in a prop in a place celebrating Dionysus and his triumph over civilized rulers. There's some irony somewhere in there. And now that we have reached the end of our tale, I can Picture a young George R. R. Martin finally falling asleep and dreaming of heads on pikes and mountains of corpses. Now, a couple of things regarding future episodes and um, ways to support the show. Let's get business out of the way first with, again, a big thank you to Onnit.com, Chimera Coffee and Datsusara for sponsoring the show. If you guys... I would never endorse products that I don't actually like. I've tried the products by Onnit, by Chimera Coffee and Datsusara and enjoyed all of them, so I have no qualms recommending them. If you want to check them out in a way that you get a discount and you support the show, uh, check out the links in the episode notes with the appropriate discount codes and uh, let me know if you like them. Also, an easy way to support the show that doesn't cost you an extra dime 
is uh, if you shop on Amazon, please use the Amazon link that we have on the History on Fire website and uh, you don't spend an extra dime and Amazon give us a little kickback. And of course, there's the other obvious ways to support the show, which is through listener donations, which are always very appreciated. There's a donate button on the History on Fire website. If you decide to be so generous as to use it, a thousand thank you to you. One quick thing regarding upcoming episodes. I'm going to put on my Facebook page, my public Facebook page, I'm going to post something probably on October 19th or 20th, somewhere around there. And I'm going to give you guys a choice on which episode do you want next. I have a couple of episodes in mind, I've already done the research. Ultimately, I'll cover both of them. It's just a matter of order, if you want one before the other. So between October 20th and October 25th, go in there, post in the comments, let me know which one you want to see first. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's what we'll do. And, uh, and also you'll find out what some of the other upcoming episodes are. With that, I thank you so much for your attention over the last couple of hours and wish you a wonderful day.